passage, uh, it got me thinking about the many ways in which the gospel can be discredited and made disreputable. We see sometimes very prominent Christian leaders do things that bring them into some kind of shame because of sin that they fall into, whether that's shady financial dealings or moral problems or abusive power, whatever it is, they do things that bring shame on the gospel. And of course, when the media gets hold of stories like that there, then they love to make a big thing about it and be like, hey, look, these Christians aren't all they're cracked up to be. They are hypocritical. They love to tell people what to do, but they can't actually do it themselves. And I suppose that makes some people feel good because they feel justified in rejecting Christianity then because they're like, they're all hypocrites. Um, But the problem is that no matter where we go, uh, we'll we'll always be faced with hypocrisy. It's a human problem where people say that they believe one thing and they simply don't live up to it. But what we're going to see this morning is someone who's different from that. The Apostle Paul really was different in that regard. As an apostle of Jesus Christ... He took great pains to be different so that as he went about telling people about Jesus Christ, his message could actually be trusted. He wanted people to know that he wasn't being a hypocrite when he called people to follow Jesus Christ because he would do everything to ensure that he lived consistent with it. And as he writes to the Corinthians in this letter, he's concerned that some of them aren't convinced by the genuineness of his ministry. They aren't convinced that actually he is an authentic, a a true apostle. And he wants to then show that how he takes pains to actually commend his ministry to everybody that actually sees him and listens to him. And so he has to convince the Corinthians that they're wrong to cast doubt on his ministry. Because even if he might not externally be very impressive, he goes to great lengths to commend this ministry that's been given to him. And so what we're going to do in this context is we're going to listen to Paul as he commends his ministry and talks about why it is authentic. And in the previous section, Deduzi very helpfully reminded us and brought to us last week how Paul was given this message, this message of reconciliation for the world. And so Paul went about pleading with people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. It's a, a message that he poured his heart and soul into. And now what he's doing in this section is not only talking about the message that he preached, he's saying, look, I'm backing this up with my life. I'm doing everything I can so that you can know that this is a trustworthy message. So we're going to begin uh, verse 3 of 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, and we'll hear what God says to us. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, 
sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. And this is the word of the Lord. So here we have the Apostle Paul, and he is telling them why they can trust his ministry how sincere he is about his proclamation of his message. And so he writes, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. See, some people might find aspects of Paul's ministry a bit disreputable and a bit offensive. It's a stumbling block. And indeed, Paul, he, he talked about this in 1 Corinthians. You'll remember when, at the start of that letter, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, that the Jews find his preaching of the cross a stumbling block. So there are aspects of Paul's ministry and what he preaches um, offensive to some people. But as much as some people might find aspects of his message offensive, Paul will do anything in his power not to be personally offensive and to live up to this gospel that he's actually proclaiming. People might reject his message, but he wants to do everything to ensure that it's not because he is bringing disrepute to the message of the gospel. And for him, ensuring that the gospel is presented with absolute integrity, that's his life's calling. And that's every, that's everything to him. That's what he's going to pour into, pour everything into this ministry. And so he says in verse two, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And this gets to the heart of what Paul is actually doing in this letter to the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He's explaining to them why they can trust his ministry. He's commending his ministry to them so that they can see that he is genuinely concerned about their welfare and about being faithful to Christ. And so he sees himself most fundamentally as a servant of God. And this frames his entire way of life. In the ancient world, to be a servant wasn't a dishonorable thing. Uh, sometimes we hear the word servant, we think that's kind of a demeaning task. But in the ancient world, to be a servant was actually something really significant and important because it meant that you were serving someone far greater than yourself. And the more important the person was that you were serving, then the more important your role was as a servant. And indeed, this language actually gets transferred into our contemporary life as well, because even in British um, politics, those cabinet members that have a portfolio are called ministers. We talk about the Minister of Defence or the Health Minister, or even we talk about the Prime Minister. And that word simply means a servant. They serve the public good. And so even in contemporary thinking, it's something which is significant. It's something which is important. And so for Paul to see himself as a servant of God is not a lowly task. It's not an insignificant task. It's something which is full of weight and significance for him. And he's gripped by that. Of course, it's not just Paul that is a servant of God. We, each one of us, are servants of God. And we see that in various parts of the Bible, but... When we think about the words of the Lord Jesus himself, he says in John chapter 12 and 26, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. 
And so the Lord Jesus is quite free about talking about his followers, those who belong to him, as his servants. And this is an honourable thing for us. We are those who are called to follow after Jesus Christ and to listen to his instructions. That then means that our lives are not fundamentally ours to do with what we wish. In the world, people are fixated on their personal dream, their personal achievements that they want to actually succeed at. And as Christians, our lives are actually framed by what God wants from us. Yes, we've got ambitions, we've got plans, but they've got to be framed in the context of the fact that actually we are servants of the living God. What he wants for us is the most important reality in our lives. And just as Paul sought to ensure that his life would never bring his message into disrepute, so also we as servants of God ought to ensure that we live in such a way that it commends the message that we tell others about. That it doesn't ever bring the message into disrepute, but actually it makes people look at our lives and say, yes, this is genuine, there's something real about this. And so what Paul says here, it's true for him as he's commending his ministry, but it's also true for us as we think about, well, how do we put this into practice in our lives and ensure that we live lives that commend the gospel? So then, Paul commends his ministry in three different parts. In verses four and five, what you see there is that he commends his ministry through his patient endurance of suffering for the gospel so that people look at his suffering and say yes this ministry is real and then in verses six through to the first half of verse eight he emphasizes his integrity and righteousness and says look i live my life to such a high standard i live with such uprightness so that people will actually know that this is a genuine message but then in the second half of verse 8 through to verse 10, he actually emphasizes that as he commends his ministry, it's only truly appraised and appreciated by those who see it through God's way of thinking. Because externally it might not seem to be much, but if you see it through God's way of thinking, then actually this is a ministry that is real. And so we're going to have a look at each of these and think about how they teach us to be faithful servants of God. So firstly, what Paul does is he talks about his suffering. Paul, he actually does this a lot. And it's quite interesting because when we come to chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he goes through the same thing again, this big list of his sufferings. He does it in 1 Corinthians as well, chapter 4, in verses 8 to 13, got this big list of sufferings. And again, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, in verses 30 to 31, and he talks about his sufferings. And again and again, you've got Paul listing all of these hardships that he's actually went through. So that when he comes to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he's going to say that he's going to boast of his sufferings and his, the things that show his weakness. And this is very strange for us. John reminded us on Thursday night that there are some Christians that think the mark of faithful Christian service is actually when everything is going well for you. You, you know you're being a faithful Christian when you're, you're wealthy, you're well-known, you don't have suffering, and everything is just going really nicely for you. People that say things like that would actually have a real 
problem with what Paul does. Because what Paul does is he keeps on emphasizing just how much he suffers. He keeps on talking about all the bad things that have happened to him. And so you ask yourself the question, well, why does he do this? Would it not make more sense for him to talk about how God used his power to keep on rescuing him and make his life good? Why does he keep on talking about suffering? Well, I don't want to preempt all that he's going to say in chapter 11. So we're going to come to that and he talks about the reason why he boasts in his weakness. But certainly in a case like this here, the reason why he highlights his suffering is so that people would know just how sincerely he believes this message. Because you can gauge how sincerely somebody believes something, but how much they're willing to actually suffer for it. So, for example, if you've got somebody who says they're, they're an anarchist and they're going to overthrow the government, and you know maybe they stage a protest in the middle of the motorway or something, and then they get arrested, and then overnight they have a change of heart and decide that actually they're not going to overthrow the government anymore, well, then you can tell that that's a person that doesn't have very sincere convictions about their beliefs. Because it, in the face of suffering, their beliefs just wilt. And when you look at the Apostle Paul, you can actually gauge his commitment to his message, to the gospel, by how much suffering he's willing to put up with. And so he writes, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. You'll remember that before Paul became a Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus. He himself was a violent man who used to go about persecuting Christians. He went about weeding Christians out of the synagogues in, in, in Palestine and in the Roman Empire because he, he didn't want them to be talking about Jesus. He wanted it to be purely a, a, a Jewish thing that excluded Jesus. And then we read in Acts chapter 7 how Paul was actually one of the people that stood by while Stephen, an early Christian disciple, was stoned to death. And as he watched Stephen being stoned to death, I'm sure it really struck him that Stephen doesn't wilt in the face of persecution. Stephen, he, as he's dying, looks up and says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Not a flicker of doubt for Stephen that, that the Lord Jesus is real and he's prepared to even die for the truth of that claim. And so Paul must have thought to himself, these Christians, they really believe what they say because they're prepared to suffer for it. And so what you see then in the life of the Apostle Paul is a kind of replication of that because he is willing to suffer to extreme levels in order that people would see that this is real. In Acts chapter 14, you read about Paul going to the city of Lystra. And at first everything goes well. Um, he's preaching the gospel and he heals a man who was lame from birth. And people are so awestruck by this that they actually start to proclaim that Paul and his companion are actually gods come down from heaven because they're just so amazed by what's happened. But Paul managed to convince them that no, he's not a god, actually he's just a human being. And then along come some Jews uh, from, uh, from Antioch and they stir up some trouble in the crowd. And we read in verse 19 that they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. 
So it was a rapid change of events going from being acclaimed as a god to being left dead outside the city. He wasn't dead, of course. We read that he miraculously revived again and then went on to preach elsewhere. But this is the way that Paul commended his ministry. It showed that this was something that he believed wholeheartedly. He was willing to face death because this was a true message. And as servants of God, then the question comes to us as to whether or not we are willing to endure suffering and pain in order to commend this message to those in the world around us. How far are we willing to actually go for the sake of the Lord Jesus? Do people look at us and say, those people are willing to endure great suffering to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, most of us, we're not actually going to be called to go through the kinds of things that Paul talks about here. He talks about imprisonments and beatings and riots. But he does talk about other things as well. He talks about hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. And if we're going to serve the church effectively, God's people effectively, and if we're going to serve unbelievers effectively, reaching out to them with the love of God, then that's going to require hard work. It's going to require a lot of effort. It's going to require time commitments. Times when, you know, maybe we would actually prefer to just be sitting at home resting. We're going to be trying to serve others. And that's part of what it means to suffer as a servant of God. Paul talks here as well about sleepless nights. If we're wanting to be faithful servants of God, there's going to be times when, when we are kept awake because... We're troubled by the direction that the lives of friends and family have taken. And we'll be awake at night worrying about them, praying for them. Because we are willing to endure suffering to faithfully follow Jesus Christ. We're hunger. Maybe Paul's talking here about you know hunger because he's being deprived. Or maybe he's talking about hunger through fasting. Because we know that Paul did that a lot. And God will at times burden us so much with the evil of the world around us, with the problems that other believers face, the the tragedy of lives of unbelievers that don't live for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that will weigh so heavy on us that we will go without food at times so that we can pray for them and intercede before God for them. And wouldn't it be good then that if in, in simple ways like this, that we would so endure suffering that people would look at our lives and say, actually, those people, they really believe what they're talking about. They're really willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. But it's not only this kind of passive endurance that, that Paul talks about when he's commending his ministry, but it's active obedience to the call of Christ that really um, sets this seal of approval on his ministry. He endeavours to do everything with righteousness or uprightness and integrity so that people will never be able to point the finger at his ministry and say, look, you're not living consistently with what you proclaim. So that people will be able to see that he does everything that he asks others people to do. And so this is what he describes in verse 6. He says that he, he commends his ministry in purity, understanding, patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God. 
And it's interesting that as he describes some of these traits, things like love and patience and kindness, these are the kinds of things that Paul elsewhere describes as being the fruit of the Spirit. And indeed, he does specifically mention here the Holy Spirit as the one who is working in him to produce this kind of character that commends the gospel. And Paul's point here is that he's not just going about telling people a message and then it's not having any effect in him. But he tells people a message and then he demonstrates its reality in his life because his life bears the marks of an encounter with the living God through the Holy Spirit. You know, how could he forget, for example, the encounter that he had on the road to Damascus where the risen Christ met with him as he was going about ready to take Christians into prison, even to kill Christians. And then the risen Christ appears to him in great patience and kindness and actually calls Paul to himself and commissions him. Because that must have made a a remarkable impact on Paul's life because that encounter with God so shaped him that he realized that God's patience and kindness towards him had to then be extended outwards towards others. This wasn't just something for him to experience. This was something to flow outwards through his life. And that love and patience and kindness that he was shown had to be given towards others as well. And so he commends his ministry through this sincere love that's brought about through the Holy Spirit. The people would actually be able to look at it and say, this is genuine. And then... As he conducts his life in this way, he says that he demonstrated the power of God as well. And we saw in 1 Corinthians how he talks about how his message came with power. But he emphasizes that this this is God's power. This isn't because of his great eloquence or great wisdom. This is because in humble proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection and what that accomplishes for us as sinners that God works through that message to demonstrate his power by convicting people and bringing them to himself. And so Paul can say that he commends his ministry through the power of God at work in him. And it's not necessarily something flashy or showy, but it's God's power working through weakness. And he continues then in verse 7 to say, that he commends it with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report. And again, the emphasis here is in how he is living with righteousness, uprightness to commend his ministry. And he describes righteousness here as, as weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left hand. Now, it could be that what Paul's talking about here is the fact that in ancient times, you would typically have an offensive weapon in one hand, like a sword or a dagger, and then you would have a defensive weapon, an offensive in the one hand, and a defensive weapon on the other hand, like a shield or something to actually prevent someone from actually attacking you. And so by talking about weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left hand here, what he's saying is that his righteousness not only enables him to counteract attacks whereby people would say that he is a fraud or a fear but also it enables him to withstand any attacks so where people might accuse him of doing wrong 
And then that parallels the idea that this, these weapons of righteousness protect him in glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, because he, he needs these offensive and defensive um, aspects of righteousness in order to be able to protect him because there's going to be times when he's full of glory and good report and people will be singing his praises and what's he going to do then the 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 danger for paul is that he could be puffed up with pride and think yeah i'm a great guy and then what he needs in a situation like that there is the weapon of righteousness uprightness in order to prevent him from falling into sin like that but equally there's times of dishonor There's times of bad report where people are saying all kinds of bad things about him. And what he needs is the weapons of righteousness so that he can actually point to his life and say, I've got a clear conscience. I haven't done anything wrong before God. And this weapon then actually protects him from some accusations. But just as Paul, he needs this kind of righteousness and integrity to guard his ministry so that he can say, look, this is a faithful ministry. We too, as servants of God, need to live with such uprightness and integrity that when other people look at our lives, they're able to say, that person has faithfully served God. And I've already mentioned the shame that comes in the gospel when well-known Christian leaders end up doing things which bring the gospel into disrepute. We know about that, but we've got a responsibility of representing the gospel to those that we know. We might not be very well known, but we've got friends and family and those people will see our lives and they will make an assessment of the truth of the gospel based upon what they actually see in us. When they see us living lives of integrity, matching what we actually say we believe, then it becomes much harder for them to actually say that this isn't real. You, Paul, he talks about this in his letter to Titus in chapter 2.10 and he calls it adorning the doctrine of God our Saviour or making the teaching about God our Saviour attractive to other people so that when other people look at our lives they see us living such good lives of patience, goodness, kindness, living lives of uprightness and integrity so they look at our lives and they say actually there's something to this They're actually living consistent with what they say. And thus, when we've got these these weapons of righteousness, then it protects us from, from false accusations that people might make against us. When people sling mud at a shield of righteousness, it's soon gonna fall off. And so also in our lives, people might say things about us, but if we're living with faithfulness to God, then charges of of falseness. Um, false accusations will soon fall away and God will vindicate his people. But lastly then, Paul commends his ministry not only through enduring hardship, not only through um, living a life of integrity and righteousness, but he commends his ministry in a way which must be seen through God's perspective. Because his life is one of paradoxes. It's a life where... Externally, it doesn't look like much, but when you look at the reality of it, you see the power of God at work. And so he says in the second half of verse 8 that he and other true servants of God are genuine yet regarded as impostors, known and yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing 
and yet possessing everything. See, a paradox is something where it seems contradictory, but it's not. And that's what Paul's ministry is like. It looks like it's not up to much, but actually God is at work in his life. And so he's saying to the Corinthians, look, if you're judging me by mere external appearances and saying that my ministry isn't up to much, then you're not seeing what's really happening. And he acknowledges that at sometimes he was regarded as an imposter. He was regarded as somebody that just wasn't a real apostle. And maybe sometimes people were saying, look, he isn't one of the 12. Why should we listen to this guy, Paul, who just came late on the scene and seems to be so independent? And he says that even though he's regarded as an imposter, that he's sure of his genuineness. Some people talked about him as being unknown. He's a nobody. And yet he says he is actually well-known. Because he might not be well-known in the world, but in the courts of heaven, where God sees what's going on, he was known, and God had a purpose for his life. He says that he's seen as dying at times, and yet he lives on, because people thought at times that 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 was the end of Paul. You know, in sickness at times, in suffering at times, in imprisonment at times, they thought, well, that's the end of Paul. And yet God's purpose means that he actually lives on. He says that he's beaten and yet not killed. And we saw that in Acts 14, didn't we? Where Paul, he's taken outside Lystra, he's stoned to death. Not actually to death, it looks like he's died. And presumably he's lying there unconscious. And everybody looks at him and says, well, that's the end of him. And they all go back to their homes. But the reality of God's work defies all the external appearances and all of their expectations. Then he says that he is seen as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And indeed, there was much in his ministry that gave him great sorrow. The the evil in the world around him, the hardness of unbelievers' hearts, the unfaithfulness of Christians at many times. And his ministry then is seen as one in which is just full of sorrow. And yet, if you really see the kind of person that the Apostle Paul is, you discover that he's full of joy. And you you can't read through books like Acts and not see the depth of his joy because you discover that in Acts chapter 16, when he's imprisoned with Silas, it's midnight. They're stuck in this really horrible jail, I assume. And what are they doing? Well, they're praying and singing praises to God and everybody's listening to them. And so even in the darkness of his worst situations, we find him rejoicing And praising God, singing in the darkness. He was seen as poor, and doubtless he was. He didn't have many material resources. And yet there he was going throughout the Roman Empire, preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. And people who then discovered Jesus Christ discovered the treasures that were only to be found in him. And lastly, he says that he was seen as having nothing, but yet he possesses everything. And this was his great joy, that even though he went about, and at times he probably had nothing to his name, probably just the clothes on his back, yet he possessed everything because he had Christ. Because he saw the risen and ascended Christ on that Damascus road, and he became aware that God had exalted Jesus Christ to the highest place in all of creation, the ruler of all things. Because the Lord Jesus said that he'd been given all authority and power. And so Jesus was the one that was in control of everything. 
And one day he believed that Jesus would come back and put all things under his feet. And so the future was Paul's. And he would reign with Christ and everything would be his as it was Christ's. And so there was nothing that Paul didn't have. And yet, that was a ministry that you could only properly appreciate if you saw it through God's perspective. And so the way that Paul commends his ministry isn't the way you'd commend it in worldly terms. If you wanted to commend it in worldly terms, you would talk about your success. You would talk about your fame, your popularity. You would talk about your health and your prosperity. And Paul doesn't do that. He commends himself by saying, I'm treading the path my master trod, just as he was despised and rejected, just as he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is the path which I will also tread. And you'll only truly appreciate the reality of my ministry if you see it through that lens. And what about us then? Do we weigh the success of our faithfulness to our service to God by the standard of the world? Do we look at external markers of success when things seem to be going smoothly, when we're in good health, when our efforts seem to be bearing fruit in remarkable ways? Or do we see that very often God is working out his purposes in the midst of what seems like failure at times? Do we measure our success by the standards of a crucified Lord who won his kingdom through the cross? Of the Apostle Paul who saw remarkable success and people being brought to Christ through a life of great suffering and difficulty because sometimes it can be tempting to latch onto the long thing the wrong things as markers of our success and sometimes the most effective ministries are those which go unnoticed and are small and don't win the applause of lots of other people and that's one of the things that I do love about Bensham here that by and large we're not known we're not big we're not flashy there's many things, humanly speaking, that just are quite unimpressive about us. And yet, when we work hard and faithfully for the Lord, we're not troubled by these things. And my prayer is that would long continue, that we wouldn't gauge our success or the faithfulness of our service based on external markers, but would see actually that God is at work amongst us. Now Paul, he concludes this commendation of his ministry in this section with an appeal to the Corinthians that they would recognise just how he has poured out his life for their good. And so he says in verse 11, We have opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affections from you, but you're withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as my children. Open wide your hearts also. You can feel his sincerity there, can't you? He longs that these Corinthians would recognize just the depth of his sincerity, the depth of his love, so that they would receive him and welcome him just as he loves them. But the passage then, it has a call for us too. It's not just about Corinth in the first century. It's individually as servants of God. The passage calls us to ask ourselves the question, how are we commending the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we face suffering? Do we face it with a willingness 
to suffer knowing that it will commend the gospel as people see our lives and say, look how they are willing to endure hardship for the sake of Christ? Do we commend our message through lives of integrity? Which is one of the reasons why that we, we believe in faithfulness as a church and holding each other to account to actually ensure that we live lives that commend the gospel? And do we mark our success not by the standards of the world, but by God's standards, by the life of a crucified Lord, by his standards as a way of realising our faithfulness? Such questions, they challenge me deeply. And I pray that as we seek to answer those questions ourselves, that God would help us to commend the gospel through the ways that we live. So let's close in prayer and ask for God's help to do that. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the way that the Apostle Paul commended his ministry so that even now as we look at his letters, we can see someone who lives with, in, lived with integrity. And we don't read these letters and doubt them thinking, oh, look at the hypocrisy in his life. But we read them with, with joy and gladness and see his conviction, see his sincerity. And it speaks to us even now. And it makes us long to be like that to model our lives after his faithfulness and so as your servants to live lives that endure suffering, to live lives that are full of uprightness and to live lives that are marked by your approval despite external appearances so that we would commend this wonderful message that you have given to us and have led us to believe. And so we ask then that you by your spirit would and bring about faithfulness in our lives for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.